And maybe, maybe in five years, I'll look back and be like, man, I can't believe we love that, that sacker and everything everywhere all at once. Oh my God, how naive we were. I don't think so, but you know, who knows? Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we are going to kind of insert a bonus episode and we're going to be talking about the film that I feel like everybody's freaking talking about. Uh, Everything, everywhere, all at once. We were going to be doing uh, one of the patron chosen topics. We mentioned this in the last episode that there was a tie. So we're actually going to do both of the patron chosen episodes. So what we're going to do is we're going to do um, everything, everywhere, all at once this episode. Next week, we're going to talk about Job. And then the week after that, we might do something else. And then the week after that, we're going to get to the other patron one, which was on, um, you know, is can you be an uh, an ethical CEO, bourgeois class trader, that kind of stuff so and that'll give us a little time to kind of sort our yeah sort our thoughts about that um but uh yeah so i'm pretty stoked to talk about this movie because it was actually your sticky leaves last week indeed it was and i'd been wanting to see it so it was kind of like a great prompting i think actually i went that night yeah it was it was that night (laughs) that i went and i saw it so it was like the perfect prompting. So I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Um, obviously, there will be spoilers. So if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to see it, bookmark the episode and come back. If you have seen it, hold on. It's going to be a, a multiversal ride. And uh, yeah, is there any admin stuff that we got to get to before we get into this? No, I just want to remind everyone that if you want to contribute to things like choosing our next patron-sponsored episode, you can go to owls, or patreon.com slash dawn and sign up there for various tiers in which you can get goodies like contributing to our patron-sponsored episode, access to our Patreon Discord, and some other good stuff too. So patreon.com slash dawn. Awesome. All right. So now we got to start things off the way we start off every motherfucking episode. It is with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off. It is Troy's turn to release the energy. So Troy, feel free to let it go. So the obvious one for this week would have been to talk about the political discourse happening in America right now. But I just, (laughs) I thought about it and maybe in two weeks I'll feel like it wouldn't be as as cringe to talk about it in a shitty minute. So the mm. shitty minute is about expunging like the negative energies and the, getting the catharsis from all that, right? So it would be appropriate for that yeah. reason. But I just I can't I can't muster I don't know the courage or the energy to address that right now. So I'll talk about mm-hmm. something else that sucks and something else that sucks. I don't know if you're familiar with this because you're not seeing like I'm watching some NBA playoffs and stuff in the evenings at times. Um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot, all these new crypto ads are coming out and I think they're actually, they're not terribly new. They've probably been going on since like maybe the Super Bowl or so. So back in like February, mm-hmm. have you seen like the Matt Damon crypto commercial, or the LeBron James crypto commercial or any other celebrity endorsed ones? No, I have not seen a single one. Thank fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will say maybe just go watch the, the LeBron one and the Matt Damon one. Just it's you know it'll take literally one total minute of your time, um, but to get a, a better sense of like what I'm talking about here, I think you'll you'll 
gather from some of the discourse around crypto stuff what I'm what I'm like what's really like grinding my gears with this. So the mm. common theme through these ads, and I try not to watch the ads whenever they come on, you know, in, during timeouts and whatever. But you see LeBron James pop up, and you're like, "What? Well, you know, what's going on here?" Um, the LeBron yeah. James ad, it's a uh, current LeBron goes back in time, I guess, and meets 18 year old LeBron when he's playing at the <laughs> whatever Irish Catholic <laughs> high school he was playing at before he joined the NBA. Um, and uh-huh. like young LeBron and they do the whole, you know, aging down thing or whatever. That's all hip in movies today. And, uh, he, like young LeBron's asking him like, what's it like? You know, do I make it? Am I a superstar or whatever? And then like old LeBron's getting him some cliche advice. Right. And then the basic yeah. idea being, um, and this is the common theme through all these ads. They mention something like fortune favors the brave, like whatever you do, what matters most is that you're being brave. Right. You got to just face uncertainty Mm. head on, take it on. And that's the only way you can actually have success or accomplish something great in life. This is the greatness narrative, which, of course, is why they're getting people like LeBron James or Matt Damon or whomever. Um, People have a sense of, you know, LeBron coming from uh, underprivileged underprivileged background, Akron, Ohio, becomes, you know, greatest basketball Mm. player of all time. Matt Damon, I mean, I don't know his whole background, but I think people who know of Matt Damon or maybe are familiar from like the Goodwill Hunting days have a sense of like a really talented kid who comes up and writes this movie and from Southie in Boston. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. So like in some sense, he kind of a con- like you know um, rose up from you know tatters or whatever and rags to riches story. And that's probably not true. I'm sure he and Ben Affleck had all the privileges in the world. I don't know the whole background, but that's probably a, a sense in which pe- that people have about him, I'm guessing, which would make him a candidate for this kind of advertisement. Uh, there's even yeah. one with Larry David. I'm just remembering this now where Larry David, uh, is going like, back in time and telling a bunch of, inv- uh, inventors, like the guy who went like the, you know, caveman who invents the wheel or whatever, yeah, this will never work. This is dumb, right? And then at the end, mm-hmm. someone's telling him about crypto, and he's just like, "Yeah, not me. That's not for me. This will never work," you know. And I'm always right about this stuff. And it's like, don't be like Larry David, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So the common theme throughout all these is this fortune favors the brave narrative. It's trying to introduce this sort of value laced. I don't know that it's necessarily moral, though it's morally tinged uh, theme of. What matters about crypto is that it's this quest to overcome obstacles, to mm. face uncertainty, and that when you accomplish things in that sphere, that's true greatness or something like that. That's to be valued, right? Not certainty, mm. right? Not stability, not safety. No, it's uncertainty and instability and still conquering. That's how you know that you're great, right? And so mm. for anybody who's unsure about whether the crypto phenomenon, whatever its origins, um, whether it's leaning more towards a certain political orientation, let this be the lesson that this is a fully reactionary conservative logic, which has its origins mm. all the way back in the original conservative Edmund Burke, right? This idea that the what, one of the greatest values of the free market system isn't necessarily that it provides um, incredible stability or a high floor or lack of suffering or things like that, but actually... But in some cases, it creates an atmosphere for greatness to abound, right? Mm. And this is this, you know, a conservative logic that people aren't necessarily comfortable admitting is a large part of kind of the tech bro culture, right? The Peter Thiel is probably the greatest example of this, and he's kind of a you know strong mm. like Randian, um, bizarro Nietzschean uh, kind of ideologue. 
And that's the that's the through line, right? The idea is that we need things like uh, complete deregulation of certain markets, um, not because it produces necessarily the best outcomes for all or any kind of like util- utilitarian logic like that, but instead that in some cases it immiserates many people, but that that, that allows for um, the truly great individuals to shine greatest, the truly noble mm-hmm. virtues, right? The masculine virtues in this case to be best exemplified. Um, and I, I've harped on this idea on the podcast before because I think it's probably the moral logic that's at the center of conservatism, right? Going back to someone like mm. Edmund Burke. Um, and I don't think that it's necessarily entirely wrong. It wouldn't have any cachet if it was entirely wrong. It, I think it does point out something about kind of mainstream liberalism that is true. Um, and that there's something, and obviously pretty strongly like Kantian Hegelian lines here, something about alienation and antithesis and stuff like that. That's an important process of development, which a lot of strange liberalism tend to eschew that, right? And just ignore that aspect. The problem, of course, with that is um, life provides all of that for us, <laughs> right? Like life provides all the alienation um, that you could possibly ever need to overcome, right? Uh, We don't Hmm. need to further introduce that by like planning immiseration, right? Um, And of course, those things are always cynically aimed uh, into sort of entrenched existing hierarchies, social hierarchies, right? They're to defend, this is the conservatism part, right? To defend social hierarchies which are already existent rather than create some like level playing field where meritocracy ensues or something like that. Not that that would be good even if we were to accomplish that. That's supposed to be like the, the cover for it. So don't want to go to a long diatribe about that. Um, point simply being, I think this is the, the crypto phenomenon showing it's pretty true colors here, right? This is a clearly reactionary conservative logic at the heart of it. Um, the most cynical case, of course, is that this is just a, the small percentage of people who hold most of the crypto holdings trying to get other individuals to just face uncertainty and take on huge amounts of risk because of some weird sense of value, right? Um, so it's basically just like, you know, suckering fools or whatever. And even if it's not as bad as that, I, mean, I think it probably is, uh, it's still a pretty clearly reactionary conservative logic at the heart here. This has nothing to do with the really important virtues, right, uh, of society, like equality and fraternity and community and stuff like that. So... If anybody's still holding out hope that there's some sort of like strong leftist uh, promise in the logic of these things, uh, maybe in some other world there is, but I don't think in this world that's certainly not how it's manifesting itself. Um, this is pure um, um, ideology. <laughs> so, like, um, so you see those those commercials where um, some celebrity and so on comes and he's like a knight, right? And so um, it's no longer ideology. It's like we don't know what we're doing and we're doing it. Now it's like it's more we know exactly what we're doing and we don't believe it, but yet we do it anyway. So that's what I'm thinking as this is going <laughs> on here um, is that it's like that was a horrible Zizek impression because I, I, I can't do it, but. 
uh, tried to get the 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 sniffles in. You got the sniffles, um, which but, is the most important so what, part. Yeah, it's so cynical because it's um, it, you know what it makes me think? It makes me think of just it's like the monomyth, the Campbellian monomyth that um, is like being forced down your throat. It's like you must go and slay your dragons, and that uh, when you were talking about Edmund Burke, it's you know you um, you wanna you wanna free the capacities of like market exchange so that you can better equip people, which is really kind of like what the whole point then of the development of human capital is about, right? In like the the 20th century, you develop people with their their armor and with their swords, and then you go and you send them on their way, and then they can go and they can slay more dragons, and they can slay more dragons, and they can um, become better productive uh, capital inputs or whatever, right? But it is, there is this like, it's about like, you know, asserting of the self to, to, to conquer in a world. But I don't think we believe in that anymore. We don't really believe that, you know, we're somehow on a path towards like ultimate discovery or on a path towards um, some sort of um, like integration of all of our possibilities towards some heaven on earth. And so the question is like, what is they actually, what is it that it believes in? It's not aiming towards anything. And, um, the sociologist Ole Bjerg uh, writes about this more recently where he talks about how – I think we might have talked about it that capital oh, in the Death Drive episode where like capitalism um, no longer operates by there being desire but it's rather just pure drive now because desire requires there to be an object that causes the desire. Mm -hmm. But there is no object anymore. So it's just pure compulsive drive now. And so I think that's kind of what you see in this. And it's it's so interesting. Like I haven't even seen the commercials and I can already tell you this fortune favors the brave narrative fits so well into this kind of just pathological um, compulsive repetition of uh, a real cynical a real cynical idea. Um, and I also think that it's like really kind of dangerous for young people, right? Because if you're that's really who they're going to appeal to is they're going to appeal to the young person who looks up to LeBron and they're going to be like, oh, shit, that's right. I got to be brave. And it's just more of the same kind of achievement subject narrative that is fed to us from everywhere that reinforces this this structure of feeling that libidinally invests you into these activities. It libidinally invests you into this tendency to continually produce the social formations of domination um, that are going to continue to create the conditions of discontent that then are going to create the conditions for you to libidinally invest in these social formations of domination and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just really fucking cynical and really gross. And the reason I go to Zizek is because it's right there. Like they, they tell you what they're doing. Like they tell you exactly what they're doing and you do it anyway, you know? And so, um, because we don't believe that it's actually going to work. We know that it's fucking cynical, but we continue to invest in it anyway. And so, I don't know, there's there's a great essay for people who um, either have access to it or maybe you can find it by um, a scholar named Amin Saman that's just been bouncing in my head. It's, the last name is S-A-M-M-A-N and the first name is A-M-I-N. And he writes about... Nietzsche's eternal return and what he calls like the two structures of feeling between the asset poor and the asset rich. And um, he talks about how like the asset rich wake up every morning, you know, and it's like a game. It's like exciting that they can they can monitor the 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 shifting prices of their asset portfolio, right? Or the shifting values, I should say, of their asset portfolio. And then they it's really exciting to go and look for other possible ways of diversifying to minimize risk, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if you're asset poor, it's just you are under the thumb of debt, 
right? And you're just trying to pay your credit card, pay your cell phone bill, pay your rent, pay your this, pay your that, pay your this, you know, and you're worried. And so there's a burden. And obviously within the kind of like two extremes, there are variations, you know, the really asset rich might have different, um, experiences and then the really asset poor would have very different experiences. But it just makes me think about this too, that like crypto is really selling that everybody can be asset rich, that it's all about that exciting quest, that all of you can grab the tail of the tiger when you wake up every single morning. Like I heard some fucking CIO of this massive logistics company the other day who's, they're talking about inflation and all this stuff like facing us and the likelihood of a big recession and stuff like that. And he's like, he's like, times are good, man. I wake up every morning and it's like I'm grabbing the tail of a tiger because I can't even tell you how many of my clients <laughs> are trying to come and work with me. And I'm like, dude, that's just not the world that 90% of people live in you know, or maybe more, maybe it's 99% that don't live in that world. Um, but you are the, the chief, you know, um, investment officer of this massive, of this massive firm. And of course you are going to say that. So I don't know. It, it sounds extremely cynical to me. Yeah. I mean, and like, I don't want to go too far on the limb here, but part of me really wants to say like, it's also a symptom of a kind of both social and psychological disease that, that sort of becoming asset rich or whatever is comparable to the slang of the dragon <laughs> in the metaphor, right? Mm. Um, like that's I mean, John Maynard Keynes, uh, Keynes said in, um, in that uh, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, that famous essay, right? Which actually, it'd be fun to write, read that and talk about it on the podcast sometime because mm. I've read parts of it, but I never actually read, read the whole thing through and it'd be fun to talk about it with you. Um, but anyway, he mentions at some point in there that like one of the things about being in the 21st century and having all this um, leisure time because we'll have solved a lot of, you know, society's social problems um, will be that the the desire to accumulate money or assets for its own sake or accumulate wealth mm. for its own sake will be seen as this sort of psychological disease that it is um, mm. since it's just so obvious. It'll be so obvious at that point that there's no reason to do it, right? It's just not rational. Um, <laughs> and this is like, obviously he was incredibly wrong about that. If anything, the reverse has happened, right? But that's just like... I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a humanities person. And so I'm the diseased one, but it just feels like everyone gets caught up in this, in this notion that I don't, what's the value, the end value is supposed to be. Uh, and there mm. is things, there are things that are like, like prestige and honor and stuff that I think are, um, there, there's some like value adjacent notions that exist here. And clearly this, these kind of, ads but it's all instrumental. But in the end, but it, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's in the end, it's all instrumental. Yeah. You're not, nothing is happening here that's in any way worthy of the honor, <laughs> right? That's the problem. If you slayed a fucking dragon, yeah. I'd be like, damn, you're cool as shit, right? Yeah. And you deserve it. Yeah, it's be, but there's but there's like a fundamental detachment from the earth. There's a detachment from community. There's attachment from, like you said, values that because those things only matter in so far as they, um, kind of can be quantified and you you achieve them so you get power but it's a power that is always mediated by the accumulation of the resources so there's like this like this belief that you can you can integrally combine pleasure to somehow reach value right and so the pursuit of pleasure as it's measured in like monetary accumulation or something is then held over you as like but if you just get enough then you can reach the thing, but what, but, but they never really tell you what the thing is. They're always vague enough. You know, they use like celebrities to be like fortune favors the brave, but like a celebrity is, is, is that then the value that 
do I want to be like LeBron, right? Like, has LeBron reached the Mecca, so to speak, right? Well, has he reached, you know? That, that's the trick of, and, of and the celebrity endorser, And he has. Yeah, but and exactly. That's that's, and he has in an economy that only cares about the quantification of reality. Yeah, I mean the 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 trick of the celebrity endorser is look, there's no actual end value here, right? So we have to yeah. use someone that you hold immense respect for to kind of trick you into thinking that oh, there must be. I just have to, I have to like go into it to figure out what that is, right? Yeah, it's not the obvious like, well, this let's go on a fucking adventure or let's go to space or something where it's like, well, I. I know what's awesome about that. No one has to convince me otherwise. Um, you don't know. And the whole point of this is like, look, it's super uncertain. You might not even know what this is, but don't worry about it. It'll be okay. Just join us and then you'll figure it out in the end. It's pretty culty logic. Yeah, I've been writing I've been writing a lot about um, Deleuze and Guattari here. And, and I think that actually what they say in Anti-Oedipus really holds true to this exact thing is they talk about like uh, in in – kind of capitalist state formation or social formation that you get this persistence of what they call the Orstat, which is basically like a, the the despot or the logic of the state, which is what codes, which is like determines qualitative determinations with, within a social field, but that capitalism operates precisely by what they call decoding, ter- decoding deterritorialized flows, right? So it only operates through axiomatization because it is only concerned with Buy low and sell high, you know, buy labor at a low price, sell it for surplus value, Um, buy money at a low price, sell it when the price point goes up. Right. So that's that's uh, cap. That's the kind of like logic, if you will, of capitalist axiomatization. But there's this persistence of this tendency towards recoding that comes from the threat of decoding. So what I wonder is, is are these like media narratives, this like psychoanalytic tendency to try to to encourage us by these structures of feeling that we are actually doing something meaningful in our pursuits of wealth, is that not essentially what they're talking about? That that crypto does because money can scramble flows because it just kind of decodes things by making us have like a disinterested or or by by asserting a sort of like disinterested um uh it's not value what is it a disinterested axiomatic kind of relation to the social field and its and its resources and its assets and then what you get is you get this secondary thing that comes in that's like ah but now we're going to code it and we're going to be like ah actually this is like fucking slaying the dragon go get your shield and get your sword and go do your thing and so then there's this like constant tension that's taking place and so these commercials are precisely that it's the freaking orstat or the the what they call it the despotic machine that's coding that's constantly coding and using celebrities and using the history of like uh, monomyth culture which is then reinforced in television and in Star Wars films and everything And so all those things are compressed in just this one tiny commercial. And so what we get is just this onslaught of codes that are coming at us that are kind of secondarily then giving us a a value that is trying to deal with the fact that there's this constant bursting at the seams of the disinterestedness of capital's decoding tendencies. I don't know. That's kind of using a little bit of jargon, but if you're familiar with their work, it makes sense. And if not, I, I hope it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, maybe you'd tell me if this is a way to oversimplify it to the nth degree, but if you got to work that hard to convince me something is awesome, then it's probably not awesome. <laughs> like, if, if the yeah, first time a, I heard Jimi yeah. Hendrix solo, like, I knew that that was awesome. No one had to tell me. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's a whole industry around convincing you Jimi Hendrix is awesome because they want to sell you t-shirts and shit like that, right? But you That's also right. knew right away. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. That's fucking great. That's fucking great. Yeah, that's so good. Shoot, can you just let's just encapsulate that? That's actually fucking great. Yeah, if you have to tell me it's awesome, then it's not. Yeah, exactly right. Um, that's so good. Yeah, no, I haven't seen the commercials. I'm really glad. I, I mean, because I just only watch stuff. I don't watch stuff on network TV or on TV where they would have commercials here. So every once in a while, I see commercials here, but they're Australian commercials. So I haven't seen. Oh, I guess when I'm on YouTube, when I'm on YouTube, I'll get I'll get some American commercials sometimes. But even then, I usually get regional commercials. So. <laughs> Yeah, I am. Thankfully, I have missed them. And you know what? Whenever I'm with people who are not American, when they see American commercials, they're always like, dude, American commercials are so weird. Or like (laughs) they are. There's And I noticed there's a massive difference, not only with just the amount of commercials that we have in American television, but also that the affect, you know, is very different. It's it's so joyous, the celebration of consumerism whereas in other countries they're starting to emulate it and i always laugh now like when i see it i'm like oh my god that's that's like some sort of american affect that has been exported you see it like with all the youtubers that's and i've done this too right i mean i'm american so i guess it makes sense but hey what's up guys welcome to the channel today we're gonna there's an affect that it's like very fucking american consumerist happy that has been exported around the world and it's just really protracted in American commercials. Yeah, but and, the sales uh, kind guy. Of yeah, the sales guy. Everyone's a fucking. Oh, this insurance is fucking great. Don't you think so, Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> yeah, man, it's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into the main segment, brother. Yeah. All right, so for our main segment, like I said earlier, we're talking about the film "Everything Everywhere All at Once" by Daniels. Not even the Daniels, right? It's just Daniels. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Uh, we mentioned last week that they were the filmmakers who made Swiss Army Man with Paul Dano, uh, my doppelganger, and Daniel Radcliffe, uh, otherwise known as the movie uh, Farty Death Corps. Um, do you remember that? <laughs> when it was called that no, at the time? but I yeah. like that. I, I don't know how I always remember that. Someone called it that on Twitter like about six, seven years ago or whatever. Always stuck with me. It's a good movie. Uh, and so... If you listen last week, you'll know that Everything Everywhere All at Once was my sticky leaf. So we talked a little bit about it then. Austin went out and saw it, as you said earlier in the episode, and we decided immediately we got to talk about this for a whole episode because there's so much here to talk about. And also just it's a really joyous film. I mean, has there been a genre indie film that's as universally beloved as this? Like when's the last time a movie came out of left field like this and has been – I think it's like the – one of the all-time greatest or highest-rated films on like Letterboxd and the, the like the audience mm. scores on the various websites like Rotten Tomatoes and stuff. It's incredibly high. It's quite the phenomenon. Not that yeah. it's you know going to be like one of the highest-grossing films of all time or anything, but for a, a completely new IP by relatively unknown filmmakers, you know, featuring a largely Asian cast, it's been incredibly successful. So that that's in and of itself is you yeah know, posited as a phenomenon. I mean. The way that we measure film success in terms of box office numbers is totally different now anyway, right? Because like the the biggest phenomena now are usually films or series that are streamed, right? Like fucking Squid Game took over the world for a little bit, but you're you're not going to really see the numbers of it, right? Yeah. Like we used to like we used to do it. But it just feels like so like this film isn't going to gross, you know, a billion dollars at the box office, but it just feels like people are talking about this film, that it's on people's minds, that it's 
um, that it's stimulating interesting discourse, that it feels like the intensity with which people enjoy this film is even greater than like the films that are at the top of the box office charts. Like fucking, now Titanic, I know, that was different. Like I, I knew people that saw Titanic like 10, 11, 12 times in the theater, right? Like that was some, that was a fucking phenomenon. But like Avatar, did anybody really give a shit about Avatar or was it just like, oh, everyone's gotta go see it because it's the thing, right? But like, oh, it, I don't remember too many people. Avatar's the epitome of, it had zero cultural impact. Yeah, yeah. Zero. And yet like, it's one of the highest any- grossing films yeah. of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't remember anybody actually caring about it, right? I, I think and we like, all got incepted. With the wind. I think we all got incepted. That was never a movie. It never came out. It never happened. <laughs> it was incepted into our minds that it happened, but nobody can remember the details. The only reason I know that it happened is from that Saturday Night Live sketch with Ryan Gosling that I love so much, where he freaks out about how the graphic designer from avatar that all he did was write avatar and then oh, yeah. highlight it and then selected selected papyrus <laughs> or wait is it, is it papyrus yeah okay i remember that yeah. sketch it's a good one and he's like and he's just consumed with i know what you did like that's, that's the only reason that i know that avatar is well, no, real so, because so that, that that sketch and then arnold schwarzenegger at like i forget which award ceremony introducing um avatar for whatever special effects uh awards it was going to get and he says this is abadah and there's like a whole YouTube oh video God. of him talking about abadah <laughs> like that and then the <laughs> snl sketch are the only two like i remember those the details of those two things infinitely more than anything about that movie which is more i've been watching veep. i've been watching veep um which i'd never seen before and it's fucking great but oh yeah um, uh <laughs> Selena, Selena, at one point, she's freaking out because of how busy she is and stuff like that. She's like, I haven't even been able to see the blue movie, the people with the blue, the, the movie with the blue people in it yet. And I was like, oh, yeah, Avatar. So that's a third cultural reference. But other than that. Yeah, I, it never yeah, happened. I, I it's think. only ever been referred to. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, real quick, before we dig too much into everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, so to talk about Daniels, I know we talked a little bit in your Sticky Leaves last week about Swiss Army Man. Have you ever seen the music video Turn Down for What by DJ Snake and Lil Jon from no. like 10 years ago? Can we just do this real quick? Can we just, everybody who's listening, I just need you to pause, go to YouTube, go to Turn Down for What by DJ Snake and Lil Jon. And Troy, can I just, can I just, can we just pause real quick? And can I just have you watch just at least like the first minute of this? Um, you can watch the rest of it. It's a three minute music video. But the reason is, is that this is how I first found Daniels. They directed this music video and I was like, who the fuck are these people that made this indie film? Cause this indie film was out and my friend was like, oh yeah, they're the, these great music video directors that did the turn down for what music video. And I was like, okay. And so, and actually someone from everything everywhere all at once is in this. I don't know if you'll recognize her. Um, but so let's just do a quick pause, watch this, and then let's come back. Yeah, so we are back now after I just had Troy watch that. So Troy, what do you think of that music video? <laughs> uh, damn, that, that shit's crazy, dude. You can who, see... Who knew that, like, boobs and dicks could do that? Yeah, <laughs> you can see some of their, like, style, too, already. And that's, like, you know, 10 years ago. But you can kind of see it. Like, as I was watching Everything Everywhere all at once, I immediately was thinking about that music video, um, plus, I also recognize. So I'm trying to I'm trying to communicate this person. Um, she was so in the TV musical. 
remember that so there's this TV musical where um it's when they're in the when the parents are in their laundromat on their television there's this musical that keeps getting referenced that um there's this couple on there there's um a woman and a man that do this dance that I think then the 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 husband and the wife then also try to emulate do you not remember that the TV That's musical right. okay. and then at yeah. one and then in one of the multiverses, when everyone has like hot dogs for fingers, they also yeah. have hot dog for fingers on the TV. But anyway, that's it's right, the same. Yeah. It's this, yeah, it's the same woman from uh, the, from the musical that's in the music video. And I, I recognized her. I was like, oh shit! And I was like, oh my god, that is it's the same person. But anyway, so yeah, that I, I've known about Daniels for a while because of their kind of like uh, craziness in their filmmaking. I mean, what do you even call turned down for what? Like big over the top bold ideas i guess you would say mm-hmm. um so i kind of and and because of the hype i kind of knew what to expect but it's still fucking they they put something special together i think man yeah I mean, it has the um the movie has the same kind of flash and the tone of kind of whimsy but also um i don't know what would you call it it's it's pretty whimsical but also fre- like frenetic and frantic Right. Mm. But then this movie, what's different is it combines it with just immense heart. Like I think almost every review or any commentary on the film that I've read or heard, people have mentioned crying in it. Like everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's a, uh, it's very emotional and maybe in problematic ways as well as uh, sympathetic ways we can talk about. Yeah. I mean, anytime there's emotional manipulation, there's always something there to like unpack and consider, right? I, I will say this just from a, a purely experiential perspective. I have not cried that much in a movie in a long time. Like I cried a lot. And then I felt like I was raw when I left. And I don't mean that in like a, a bad way, like like I was beat up, but more like I was opened, like like a pry had been placed into my chest and just opened up my heart. Like even as I was leaving the theater and walking down the street, I still, I like had another wave of like emotion come over me. Um, I just felt so raw and so open and so, I don't know. It was, there was a lot going on. Um, And it was, it was really interesting. And I think if a film can have that experience, I think, one, it's amazing that that art can have that experience. Two, I wonder why it has that experience. And then three, it makes me think, oh, shoot, is there a social responsibility then for a piece of art having this much psychological effect on people? Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's kind of what I think. The first thing I'll say is this. At one level, I just unequivocally think that movies like this are good. And I think we need more of them. And I don't typically like speaking about if it's a good movie or a bad movie or if I liked it or I didn't like it. We use those terms, but really through the course of a conversation, I actually have great thoughts about – not great thoughts as in like the quality of my thoughts. I have lots of thoughts, even like positive thoughts about films that I don't think that I necessarily liked because I can talk about stuff that's interesting about them, right? This is a film that I would say not only does it have that, that it's interesting, but I think this is actually a fucking really – like I think it's good for people to see this kind of film because so much of the films that we make now are cynical, repetitive. Um, They're just kind of like – monoculturally bland, the same sort of formulaic structure, the same stories, the same people on the screen, right? Um, 
And I think this does something very interesting and unique. And so because of that, in that sense, I think it's like a qualitative good for this type of film to be out there in the world at just one register. Unequivocally, I think so. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. You mentioned if if films can be psychologically manipulative and emotionally manipulative, does that does that sort of create a an obligation of, of social responsibility for filmmakers? And I think unequivocally it does. But that said, what's really important about the difference between a filmmaker making a film and like a person and how they treat, you know, their family or friends is that manipulation is almost always going to be wrong in interpersonal relationships. Maybe not always, but almost always. It's at least coded very strongly. It's salient that it has a wrongness aspect to it, right? But that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the case with films because it's you're sort of um, pointing it towards people you don't know, right? And the reason why manipulation in interpersonal relationships is almost always going to be wrong is because it's something you're intimate, someone you're intimate with who's in some sense is dependent upon you, whether it be, you know, for resources or for emotional support or, you know, just relationally. And there's such a strong incentive um, and sort of presumption that the artistic piece will be evaluated and critiqued that the manipulation mm. doesn't doesn't have that code of wrongness, right? So there, there's some sense in which uh, I think manipulation for from a film can still be, in a sense, maybe wrong, but it's just it's so far afield um, and so generally unlikely to actually have any of the harmful effects that we usually ascribe to manipulation that I think generally speaking, like if someone has an idea for a film and they know it's going to be. Uh, manipulative in some way by striking this nerve that a film like this clearly has, that's fine in, in large part mm-hmm. because we're going to talk about it afterwards, right? Somebody yeah. like a film affecting you, even if it affects you negatively or a way that you feel is negative, does not mean that someone has wronged you, right? Having bad feelings does not mean that you've been harmed or that you've been wronged necessarily, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. it can, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not sufficient for being, having been wronged. So, um, and I think most people experience with this, even if it is, um, sadness or crying or whatever, it's probably not even a negative emotion. I think almost everyone who comes out of this loves this film and thinks that the emotional, um, kind of just, just like deconstructed emotional state that they find themselves in after the movie is a good one because it's revealed something to them or it's made them feel in a certain way where they felt seen or something like that or affirmed in a way. And that Mm. doesn't mean that's necessarily good. Right. But I do think it means that that, that's a sign that manipulation um, by an artistic piece is not necessarily going to be a bad thing. I also think that there's something to just say at one level about the value of form that, that the aesthetic technical accomplishment itself is a, again, a good, the, the frenetic editing. I mean, at one scene, I actually had to look down the scene where it shows the mother's face going through like all the fucking multiverses and her face change the colors. But first of all, I was like, shoot, if you suffer from seizures, that would fucking suck. But I literally (laughs) had to look down because it was too much for me. Like I, I was looking at it and I mean, granted, I was pretty close to the screen in a movie theater, but like I was looking at it and I was like, oh my God, like it was like the color, it was almost too much for my brain 
to handle. And I don't usually have that. I mean, like, fuck, I've seen like fucking Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void, where if you've seen that, the opening credits of that are like insane techno music and crazy neon lights flashing at you in text and it's screaming in your face, right? But this one was so much more of an overload for me that I think there's something, one that's that's a feat that we can admire about. I mean, the film's called Everything Everywhere All at Once. And not only is the subject matter about like this multiversal set of relations, but it itself was everything everywhere all at once. You know, <laughs> like my experience of time in this film was so interesting because it wasn't linear. It wasn't like it started from A and then it went to Z. It was like it was much more like a smoke plume that was just getting bigger and enfolding, right? Like famously, Henri Bergson uses like this idea of like an inverted cone to talk about his conception of time, right? Where like an inverted cone is you have like a point, right? Like think of a cone with like its point and then how it like widens as it goes outwards. And for him, like that's a symbol or that's a that's a good physical representation of like the present is the point of the cone, like the contracted present. And the past is the the, the widening infinite like recess of the pure past that is like compre compressed down in a moment. And so time then doesn't move like forward and backwards necessarily in the way that we typically think of it as like point, 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 like a series of presents. But rather it, it um, sort of... Uh, he uses his word duration, but the way that it unfolds is that the past is always insistent and kind of informing and conditioning the present, but the entirety of the past, right? Like not just like a little bit that we remember that we're conscious of. No, the entirety of the past is there. And so that the way that time unfolds is sort of like the expansion of the cone, right? Rather than like just a simple like present, 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 present. And I felt that in this film. I felt like I was being sucked into a vortex that was just like getting deeper and more complex and bigger. And then it was fucking. Ah. And so I think from a technical perspective, it's it was wonderfully handled. And then I think also one of the things that's interesting is that I think because of the overload of the technical machinery that's used, the genres that are being employed to like the direct allusions to Wong Kar Wai and to like Chinese martial arts cinema and um, to a bunch of other things that are being used. I think what it does is it kind of overloads you. And that's part of the reason I felt so raw. Right. So it was like, I think the technical stuff also served a purpose to open me up so that then the content would land even more intensely than it would had the technical mastery not been at such a high level and had the had it not been such a a, a, a fucking pastiche or bricolage or whatever the fuck it was, you know? Yeah, I mean, do, do you think maybe you also felt so raw because of how many people were sticking things up their ass in the film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've tried it. I've, I've tried it since I've seen the film and I've not been able to verse jump. And I'm upset. I'm just looking for the right. I'm just looking for the right just, object. Just keep trying, to, but eventually it'll happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, I I wonder I wonder why this film has had such an effect. You know, um, yeah. like I will say this That's too. Like it's like we can heap we can heap all the praise too. And I will say this. I also don't think it's a perfect film. There were a couple of times where I kind of like I felt the pacing slow down, and I thought about it, and I was like is that good or is that bad? And then it would like pick it right back up again. And in hindsight, I don't really remember it. I just, I just want to be aware that like, even if a film is, I think great, it doesn't mean that it's perfect. And I think it's, 
just to just to note that and it's okay for there to be cracks in it and i think we can note those potential cracks at some point and just to be aware that like that it's still a fucking i think an amazing film one of my favorite films i've seen in a while one of the best viewing experiences i've ever had mm-hmm. um but you know it doesn't necessarily mean it's perfect and i think that's okay but yeah, yeah why why do we think this film is having the impact that it's having yeah i mean i think one really important aspect in thinking about why it's of the impact that it's had uh, I think I read somewhere that A24 in, in advertising the film didn't send out any screeners to critics. Um, oh. The idea, I think, being you need to experience this in a theater yeah. with people to get it. And there's something about the contagion of the emotion. Mm. I don't know your experience, but my experience was in, I went to a local indie theater to see it, uh, but there was the theater was, it's small, but it was full. Um, and so I really got the sense that everybody in this theater is loving this film and is feeling yeah. the exact same way that I am. And I can, I can hear in the subtle noises that they make and the rapt attention and all that, that they're experiencing the exact same thing that I am. There's a kind of contagion to that where it, it yeah. amplifies and intensifies an already really salient um, and strong feeling. And I, I gather that the, the A24 knew that was going to be the case in their screenings or whatever that they had internally um, with the film. So there's something about whatever whatever's happening in this film, it's happening pretty universally, right? And uh, it's going to be open to this kind of contagious um, phenomenon as well. Did you have that same experience? Absolutely. Went to a small indie house, one of my favorites here in Sydney, um, called The Ritz. Uh, if you're from Sydney and you listen to the podcast, hopefully you know The Ritz, fucking love The Ritz, um, uh, here in, in Randwick. Um, and um, yeah, same thing. It felt like everybody was there, was a participant in the same experience. You know, kind of like what we used to get like in church, right? Where you feel like yeah, there's like yeah. a movement of the spirit. It was like there was a movement of the spirit in the fucking crowd, man. And it really did. Um, I, You know what, man? I haven't felt that way from leaving an event maybe since i've had like a church experience no i went to i went to i've been to a couple of live performances of things where i've 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 had like that effect but it is it does make me think of like the sort of like sensationalism that you get from having a religious experience you know and part of that is a great concert yeah yeah and i was thinking too i've been to it might sound weird but i went to a comedy event with michael burns in la once that like changed my fucking life. It was this improv show where they mixed, I think I might've talked about it on the podcast at some point, but it was like, they mixed improv with music with this musician. Her name's Julia Nunes. And, and then it was at, um, uh, IO, which was improv Olympics, which I don't think is around anymore, but it was where he was training for a while in improv. And, um, and, uh, it was like these amazing improv actors, like, you know, people that write for like Saturday Night Live and shit like that. So they're like, you know, really talented. And then this amazing musician and like, she would do one of her songs and then they would do like improv around her songs. And I don't know, I can't explain it. I, I fucking cried like hard and <laughs> the content of the night, I don't even remember. I just remember the experience and that there was something about this convergence of these different art forms and these people in this really tiny theater in this like space that did something that was yielded like a transcendent experience or a transcendental experience. And yeah, it's why I oftentimes like to separate like whether or not I think the film was good or whether like the experience was different or like what about like there rather than just being like I liked it or I didn't like it. It's more like like I've had experiences in the theater that I will never forget because there's something about that contagion that you're talking about that is part of the artistic event. And yeah. that's why I love the theater so much because 
I think that art, it can be appreciated in your room flipping through, you know, a catalog of famous paintings or photographs or reading poetry on your own, of course. But I think there's something that I really appreciate about social art, about communal art. Um, maybe that's not communal art, social art, art that is, or, or I don't know how you would describe it, the, the social experience of art that I, I think it just elevates it to another level. And so I think for me, that's part of the reason why this film has resonated so much with me is precisely because of that, that, that community experience. Yeah. I mean, it's a great example in the, in the debates about, um, the theaters basically being, being taken over by, by the various Disney films, um, and, and basically nothing else and everything else that's any good is going to end up being on streaming or whatever. There's a real loss there. And this is a good example of that, right? If I hadn't seen this movie in a theater, that would have been a huge loss for me and for anybody else. Um, that's just watching it at home. And that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it at home, but there's, there's something unique and special about the theater experience that can't be replicated anywhere, but the theater experience. Mm. Yeah, I saw some, there was some screenshot the other day from someone on Twitter. It was like of their local movie theater that had all the screenings of Doctor Strange. And did you see that tweet that went viral? And it was like, it was like a hundred, like I'm not exaggerating. It was like a hundred screenings <laughs> of Doctor Strange in like the day. It was like they had one at eight and then they had one at 8.05 and then they had one at 8.15 and then they had one at 8.30. And then I was like, Jesus, man, it was just all day. No matter what, you were going to be able to find a, a theater to go see Doctor Strange. So. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, um, I, know. I want to talk a bit about the representation of nihilism in the film. Um, yeah. Because obviously this movie is, for whatever the, the, the form of multiverse stuff and sci-fi and genre and all the flashy um, cinematography and stunts and martial arts and stuff like that, it really is like a family film, right? It's about a family, you know, the dynamic within a family. Um, and I mean, I don't know about you, but almost everyone I've talked to who's seen it, the the scene that people keep going back to is the, the one with the rocks with the googly eyes yeah. um, where they're in the, <laughs> they're in the universe where the conditions for life on earth never uh, obtained. And so you just go here to not feel like something for a little bit. Right. And I think yeah. everyone was kind of like, yeah, I, I get that. I, I could use that every once in a while. Um, and the, the beauty of that moment, even though there's no like dialogue, I mean, there's dialogue, but it's not spoken, right. It's all written. It's all, I don't know what, intuited or telepathic or whatever. Um, yeah. And it's the combination of the absurdity and the hilarity, but then deep truth. And that, that really was like the coalescing moment. Not even the actual denouement of the film or anything. That was the one where people were like, okay, that's where it really got me the most, right? There's a real, there, there's a real hell is other people vibe there too, because when, when the mom comes, the daughter's like, what the fuck, man? Like I, I had this place and then they're like, well, just wait, language is coming. And then it's like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> the other, right. The other is coming. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's kind of the introduction to this sort of, I think fairly kind of deep comment about nihilism in this film mm. that's in stark contrast, I think, to the way that nihilism is often um, used in, in literature or films in general. And so you can think about like nihilism is, is often seen in films. If like it's a comedy, it's like the big Lebowski where it's some absurd German dudes, including flea, right? 
who just are mm-hmm. apathetic nihilists, right? They just don't believe in anything, right? Nothing actually is worth caring about is sort of the idea. Um, and that ends up with nothing really tragic other than just not really caring about anything. Um, or it's, if it's a really serious film, it's like in a lot of European films, nihilism is like in a, like in a, a Bergman film or whatever, right? Uh, it's sort of the meaninglessness of the universe sort of attacks you, right? And destroys your sense of, of what's valuable and, and worthwhile and, and meaningful in the world or whatever, right? And that's kind of an existentialist worry. And that's certainly, I think, a, a thing that people experience and that we should address and think about and use films and literature to think about. Um, for sure. That said, the way this film deals with it, I think is really prescient, is nihilism is only ever internal to values, never an ex- external threats to them, right? So nihilism only ever creeps up when the relationships that matter break down. That's when the worries mm. about meaninglessness crop up, right? It's like, it's a kind of antithesis or alienation from something good when that good thing breaks down then the threat of nihilism appears right so it's always Mm. always this internal like constitutive part really towards things of two things that we actually value and that matter to us and never an external threat to them you see what i mean by that Mm -hmm. yeah um two things one first of all i keep hearing uh, like a dragging sound is there like I don't know. It's like yeah, a the, scraping sound. The cat has something, and I don't. Know oh, what it okay. Is. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I keep that. Whatever that sound is. Yeah, he's got a nail. Hold on a sec. <laughs> okay. Okay, I got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. The is that is that then ultimately symbolized the kind of like the the externalization or the objective nihilism? Is that with the everything bagel? Is that how it's like, like concretized? Well, yeah, she, she concretizes it into this external thing, but that's very clearly and explicitly a creation of hers, right? Yeah. The everything bagel, whatever, doesn't come as an external, like an alien threat to destroy all value and meaning. She has to create it to symbolize the internal sense that the things that she values and cares about aren't sort of satisfiable or aren't being realized or whatever. I had like um I had like a like a theological thought about this everything bagel and I was like okay so you have this person what's her name again the Jibba, Jibbataki or oh, God, I can't remember what they yeah okay so you have this this person who comes to the point where they realize that they can accumulate all knowledge. Right. So it's a real like process theology. Right. So they they come to the point where they accumulate all knowledge of everything in the universe and they can then start to bend things to their will and they can start to kind of like do whatever the fuck they want, really. And I then started thinking like, okay, so this being with all knowledge is like a God figure. So she's like a God figure. And as a God figure, she's miserable. And so what does she want to do? She wants to find somebody else who can also like she can communicate with who can see what she sees, you know? And so I started thinking about like theology and stuff like that. I was like, is this like an interesting way to think about like a God figure? And has anybody written about this? That like the reason that God creates, I mean, this is maybe Hegelian, right? That God has to like fucking self alienate in order to be able to experience some sort of otherness. Because if it were just simply this figure that knew everything 
everywhere all at once, then it would lead to just this profound, bland um, experience of of reality because you wouldn't have an other. Like you would have you would have become everything yourself. And the the aspiration to become everything yourself, to know everything, that that would actually lead to a profound like existential crisis. So it's like the existential crisis that God has for God being God's self, for having omniscience <laughs> and omnipotence, you know? So then what God has to do is God has to create an other. God has to split himself or God has to split itself, right? Or God has to somehow find res- some sort of like a dissonance in, in the universe that that can also see it from his perspective so that God can be like, see, there's something else. So then you have like the creation of humanity or something. I don't know. I was thinking something about that. There was something there and I didn't know how to quite get my head around it, but there's some interesting theology thing here that's going uh, a lo- alongside this, you know? Yeah. So I don't know who originally said it, but Tom Waits has this line in, in one of the songs from like the seventies or early eighties that there's no devil. There's only God when he's drunk. Um, so this is is like there's there's no nihilism there's just god having an existential crisis through you yeah 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 that's fucking great i really like that (laughs) yeah 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 no i've also seen yeah it's it's straight up hegelian but then add this idea of like the modern existential crisis but god's the one having it no that's exactly that's what i was thinking when i was watching this i was like this is like god having the existential crisis and i was like i wonder if there's something ontologically that you could argue about like the tendency towards an existential crisis because of the very nature of omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence and if if all it was was you everywhere seeping into everything then maybe that would just be like cosmic bad faith right because it would just be pure essence without existence. And um, so you wouldn't have it. There's no freedom then, right? So and then this fits into all of like the old fucking medieval debates about the passability of God and does God have passions and stuff like that. And um, there's something interesting there, you know, like, I don't know. I it just kind of that's I, I was actually thinking that as I was watching the film and I was like, huh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't yeah, know I mean, where to go with it, but. I mean, even just to take it down a, a sort of um, more like New Testament biblical theme there, to, to reiterate this point about the, the threat of nihilism or the thing that creates the existential crisis is not some external considered threat to meaning. Like we think about the philosopher who's contemplating and then all of a sudden falls in uh, passively when considering meaninglessness because they're having a, they end up having this crisis or whatever. That's not actually how it happens, right? It happens when we're actually engaged in practical projects and then the the meaningful thing that we're seeking in some sense gets broken down and that is when the crisis existential crisis happens right even jesus himself when does jesus have his own existential crisis right it's not when he's like actually doubting intellectually anything it's when he's suffering and abandoned by god right um Mm. like the suffering and the the sort of breakdown of a relationship is the one that creates the crisis. That's what creates the crisis, not some intellectual judgment that the universe is devoid of meaning or something. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Like I, I haven't read the book in a long time, but like when Brassier's the New Testament? Unbound oh, came no, out, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't read that in a long time either. Um, but no, um, when Ray Brassier's Nihil Unbound came out, I think a lot of people really thought that like the thought experiment about how we need to kind of comport ourselves to the heat death of the universe is being something valuable for 
philosophical reflection. And for some reason, it never quite resonated with me. But I wonder if there's if we can bring that in into this discussion as well, right? That like the inevitability of the heat death of the universe bespeaks of this objective nihilism that is threatening us. But is that really the spark that kind of initiates productive thinking? Or is it more this kind of like personal experience that you're talking about? Or are they not as opposed as maybe I'm formulating it right now? Yeah, I mean, they're probably not opposed, but I do agree with you that it's kind of Heideggerian idea, right? Like being towards death in some sense. Yeah, exactly. Facing that makes you authentic or free. And that's just, no, <laughs> don't think that mm. it does. Um, I mean, it's probably important to at least at times face that reality because we can get, um, we can, we can sort of value inappropriately as if the heat of the universe wasn't the case. Maybe it's like a check on us at times is probably important. And certainly if you think that mm. like the whole universe is bending towards uh, the satisfaction of your preferences, there's a kind of like cosmic narcissism that people can have about that, right? Which needs to be put in check and maybe considering nihilism in that sense is important. Um, but I certainly don't think that like the ground of productive thinking, let alone moral thinking uh, or moral judgment comes from like recognizing meaninglessness of the universe in some cosmic sense or whatever. I mean, like in contrast to what is <laughs> always like my question. Um, like, I don't find living forever in a blissful heaven surrounded by music. Like that, that doesn't sound all that different actually. I mean, did you always have that sense when you were growing up in church and being like, we're going to spend all of eternity, like listening to like harps and shit and being kind of like, that sounds boring. <laughs> like that doesn't yeah, sound. I just, but they kept they kept just using like supererogatory language, right? So it was like like it'll be like this, but perfect, and it'll be like this, but like the music will be like it's like you know how good music makes you feel, yeah? It'll be like perfect music, and you know how like good food makes you feel, but it'll be like perfect food, and you know how like good friendship may, but it'll be perfect. So it was like we were we were creating these illusory fantasies to convince ourselves that the blandness of church life was going to be how we were going to want to spend eternity. <laughs> you know? It was yeah. Like, I mean, cosmic thinking of every kind of the most nihilistic or the most Christian or whatever, like all of it alienates you. <laughs> if you really think about but that's it. Why Nietzsche says, but that's why Nietzsche says true nihilism is actually Christianity. Like Christian Christianity is truly nihilistic because it refuses this world in favor of some fucking fantasy. And so you don't actually attune yourself or affirm life, nature, and history, but you affirm some sort of static conception and then you subsume yourself to it. And that's really nihilistic then because you never live in this life. You know, yeah, and that, like, that's you never, right. you never, you never get to live that fucking fortune favors the brave mono <laughs> mono the, myth. Man. Exactly, that's the problem, right? You might replace <laughs> that with this fortune favors the brave bullshit. Like the world is yeah. meaningless, so might as well go and buy a shit ton of crypto. Like that could be the answer, right? Um, there's no set. I don't. I just don't get this idea that like, yeah, Nietzsche, I think Nietzsche's right about there being a nihilistic tendency uh, to Christianity, but that doesn't mean that the opposite of Christianity in some way like grounds productive moral thinking or anything like that necessarily. Yeah. Both that entire like genre of cosmic thinking, right. Thinking about the whole universe or the universe as a whole, as in some sense, once we have that down, that can be the ground of productive thinking. I, I just don't, I don't, that's like, it's like a philosopher's prejudice, right? Cause we're the ones who do that. So of course, if whatever we do, our grand metaphysical thinking, that's going to be the thing that grounds 
um, everything productive or that matters in the world. And that's just like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, that's not really all that different um, from like Aristotle saying that the only activity that matters is like contemplation. And that's what God does all the time is contemplate and contemplate himself. Cause he's the only thing worth contemplating. Well, yeah. So then this goes back to what I was thinking. So you have this, this person who has achieved ultimate knowledge, um, and ultimate presence, we can even say, because she can also jump to any universe, right, that she wants to. And then she can even do it. She can split herself. So so she's basically achieved godhood, right? And then she wants other people to kind of – or this other person to experience that. And then it made me think like, like, but this is a human who has achieved this, right? And so it makes me think then about like that sort of Lacanian inducement of desire that comes from the – the desire for ultimate satisfaction, for ultimate knowledge, but the constant frustration with the impossibility of ever achieving it. And, and it kind of made me think about that as well, right? That, that the frustration that comes is because even though she achieves all knowledge, she doesn't achieve all knowledge of the other person's perspective of the everything bagel. So uh, she yeah. needs the other person still to kind of give her that experience of otherness. And then that's when everything goes fucking haywire. It's when God encounters the other and the otherness of the other that then the fucking system breaks down. And so it's like it's like when the absolute encounters the finite, right? The infinite encountering the finite creates becoming, <laughs> you know, fucking to the first fucking pages of the science of logic. You've got fucking being and nothing and becoming maybe. I don't know. Like there's something there's something there um, that that is that is happening here. And I think that's really interesting. And then what it leads to is this really lovely elaboration of the the affirmation of the human experience, right? In all of its variances and incompletenesses and messiness and try as we may to accumulate the everything bagel um it's in the striving for the everything that you actually kind of like find out that maybe we that everything isn't the answer we're getting real theological here yeah i mean knowledge is not the goal here it's understanding that matters and specifically not theoretical understanding but understanding as you were saying from the perspective of the other, right? And the reason why uh, Joy, it's her name, right? Joy, the daughter. Um, yeah. She creates the everything bagel is to externalize this, this um, internal threat to her sense of, of what's meaningful, right? Because the relationship with her mother is broken down in this way as a way to like symbolize to her mother, this is, look, look at this threat, right? I can't, show you because it's internal to, to my sense of, of what matters. So I'm going to externalize it into this ridiculous image so that you'll recognize it and know it. And if you can just understand what I'm going through from my perspective, that would be mm. enough. You don't even really have to do anything. You just have to understand, right? Um, and so like, think about the world from my perspective, right? And in a sense, mm. like in doing so, affirm my perspective, right? Get that sense of like, uh, of affirmation, um, and recognition. Yeah. And that's like, mm. I thought that was done beautifully. Um, 
I do have some yeah, worries about it, it that I want to bring up, but I think just that okay. general sense of, of, of placing the relationship dynamics at the forefront there was done very well. Yeah, I want to hear your worries about it. I will say this. Uh, the one thing I liked about it is it was very sentimental, but without feeling cheesy. And mm -hmm. maybe sentimental then isn't the right term because we typically associate sentimentality with precisely being saccharine. But um, a lot of people have viewed this as like a metamodern film against like postmodern, you know, detached it's not ironic. nihilism. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not in any way. And that it really leans heavily into sincerity. Right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we've we've talked a lot about like sincerity, new sincerity. You're a big DFW fan, or at least you're one of the five people that's actually read Infinite Jest <laughs> on this planet. Um, you and my buddy Scott, uh, I think Scott is still listening to the podcast. What up, Scott? Scott, I think I told you is the guy that listened to it on the, the audiobook version and he read it. So. Oh, damn. Th but that's do, you a to the footnote? do they have the footnotes on the audiobook? That's what oh, I want to know. Scott. God, let me know. Hit me up on Facebook. Let me know so I can tell Troy. Um, but yeah, go ahead. So why do you think that this is potentially something that we can critique? So I don't know. I'm really curious to get your point of view on this because I'm not sure what to think about it. But there's been a few, as much as the film is beloved, both critically and by audiences, the, the, the criticisms of it have been pretty strident. And I think that it's, it's probably because they only come from a few sources. And those sources see the overwhelming praise the film gets and need to like be the one to shoot that down, right? To be the curmudgeon or whatever that pops the bubble yeah. Um, yeah. of this film that everybody loves. And maybe maybe in five years, we'll look back and be like, man, I can't believe we love that, that saccharine everything everywhere all at once movie. Oh my God, how naive we were. I don't think so, but you know, who knows? Um, and the worry, and I, I sent you a couple of articles about this because uh, there's been a few written, is that this movie falls into the genre um, of the millennial parental apology film. And the mm. idea being that it has this form of this very egalitarian, see things from other people's perspectives in your family, in your loved, in your loved one circle or whatever, um, affirm them for who they are, uh, all these good things that we would want, right? Um, but really what's happening is it's just kind of entitled millennials demanding that their parents say that they're sorry for fucking them up with their generational trauma. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and that's a bad of, thing for well, first a, and foremost oh. from like the, <laughs> the, the first generation immigrant perspective, like, but then that can be universalized. Okay. Right. Um, yeah. and the, the idea there being that it doesn't actually follow through on this sort of egalitarian see things from other people's perspectives kind of thing and affirm them no matter who they are, but just like, stubborn demanding of an apology in a way that ex explains the parents, the boomer parents, um, why they're so stubborn and not apologizing and not seeing things from their kids' perspectives is because they've been fucked up by their parents. The emphasis there on generational trauma, right? Mm. Um, and so in a sense, seeing their parents as like an object who's just a vehicle for generational trauma, right? And so they're ignorant and clouded by their own trauma, Right. So not really mm. making them out to be a full blooded, um, you know, subjective uh, or, you know, authentic subject or whatever. Um, and then just demanding like the apology at the end. And like, I can see some of that in the film and the, and the articles that are written about this have, have noted that this is more of a phenomenon in animated films recently, like the mm. Turning Red movie, yes. which I haven't seen. I haven't seen any of these other films that are supposedly, supposedly in this genre of films in the last couple of years. 
But I am curious as new filmmakers um, like Daniels are, you know, millennials and a lot of them are having kids of their own and probably thinking a lot about these kinds of things. Like how do I not treat my newborn kids or young children like my parents treated me or whatever. Mm. Um, As they're thinking about that, that's sort of becoming a huge part of the thematic content of films like this. So I am curious what maybe what you think before I say anything about the idea that behind some of the egalitarian promise of a film like this, and it's being all about understanding and, and stuff, actually it's really just angry, stubborn millennials who want their parents to say that they're sorry. Well, I think that if the demand for an apology comes from like an overinflated sense of me being in the right and you being in the wrong, and therefore I need some sort of punitive correction then I would find that demand to be distasteful. And that's when I think the millennial entitlement argument is potent. I don't think that that's what's happening in this film, though. I think it happens elsewhere a lot, but I don't think that's what's happening in this film. Because not only do you get the millennial discontent, you also get the... Is she a boomer, Gen X, boomer, or late Xer, early boomer, whatever she is? Um, you get her discontent with the possibilities that she had in her relationship with her family and always having to live according to certain pressures. There's this one scene where when she's born, the mother, Michelle Yeoh's character, when she's born, the doctor says, I'm sorry, it's a girl, which was an intentional nod to the one child policy in China, right? Yeah. So yeah. there's also this political structure that structures the entire chain of events that then lead to the daughter, Joy, having her discontent, right, that that we can't separate because the mother has her own discontent that she's dealing with, with being a child that isn't wanted in a society or that isn't ultimately respected or whose way of life is questioned or whose decisions are questioned. And then she then herself is looking at other possibilities in the world that she could have chosen that she's questioning. And so I think it creates a much more nuanced perspective rather than it just being a punitive, you must correct your wrong by giving me the appropriate recompense. Um, I don't think it's that at all. It's much more reconciliatory or rehabilitative or restorative, which is a very different paradigm of justice and therefore of reconciliation than these articles are reducing this film to. And and then the last thing I want to say is I think that there's a real sociological reading of this film as well, beyond just the metaphysical and philosophical and theoretical that we've been exploring. And that's the sociological idea that the millennial experience is discontent precisely because of how everything is fed to us everywhere all at once in social media. The experience of the millennial is the experience of being bombarded by a LeBron James commercial that is telling you about monomyths and Star Wars and be a superhero and accumulate shitloads of money and you can be famous and you can be happy and you can go back in time and you can be brave and all of this shit and it's shoved down their throats with each and every image that they scroll or that they experience or that they participate in. And so the sociological reading is how the compression of everything everywhere all at once is actually being forced down the throats of the younger generations to a greater degree than the older generation. And so the experience that Joy has by saying, hey, I have accumulated this knowledge and I've put it in everything bagel. I need you and I need uh, I need somebody else to come see it you know, mom, can you come and see my perspective? 
I think it creates a very different experience of um, the the demanding of an apology um, than 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 kind of this more simple paradigm um, advocates. You know? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, and especially the point about the um, restorative uh, model of justice versus um, one that's more punitive, right? And so there's a sense in which. So one of the articles that I sent you, like, was was the Vox? No, it was a different one, where the the author was basically saying, like, they they sent this movie to their mother to watch and said, "Can you watch this movie so I can interview you for a piece?" And then basically mm. like demanded that their mother agree with their interpretation that it was all about generational trauma, mm. so she could sort of internalize that into her own family relationship and, and ask for an apology for her parent, her mother. And her mother didn't get it that way or didn't see it that way, and so she was upset about that. And it was like. That that's um, that's the problem. That's the bad form of apology, where it's like a demand that someone yeah. provides you with satisfaction by humbling themselves before you. The issue is that's not really an apology, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, apology's function is to reconcile. That's what a good. That's how we judge an apology as good versus bad is by whether or not it functions so as to reconcile people. Right now, a good apology might not actually do that, but it functions as to do that. And there may be other things that go in and stop it, or you know, impede that progress or whatever. But that's what a good apology does. All things being equal, and so um, if it was merely about, if it was like from the perspective of joy, right only. And then she just demands this and, and spends the whole time constructing the everything bagel to demand that her mother apologize for creating the situation where she'd have to create this everything bagel, right? Look what you made me do, whatever. That would clearly, I think, fall within the this uh, the negative interpretation that we're talking about here. But it's very important yeah. that the movie's from the mother's perspective. And it's not just mm. about her relationship with her daughter. It's also about her relationship with her husband, too. That's so right. you know that's a secondary relationship, but it's an important one too. None of the three characters really seem to see each other or affirm each other. And her relationship with her father, yeah, like definitely part of the reason she doesn't accept joy is because she's trying to keep up appearances for who fa- for her father, who she maybe feels like she never was good enough to um, to uh, receive his approval, and then that's partly because of then the larger cultural. So, I mean, it, it's this massive chain of, of generational experiences that I just don't think you can reduce it to, um, to the one generational experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it probably says more about the, the viewer if that's how they interpret it than it does about the film, because the film is pretty clear. I think about the point that understanding within the, the three of them, even the four of them, including the grandfather, um, is the goal. And maybe they don't fully get there, but they at least recognize that's what's needed, right, at the end. That's why one of the the biggest tear-jerking moments is when Joy's girlfriend is shaking the grandfather's hand, and he says in Chinese, I think he says girlfriend to her, and he accepts her, and he's okay, and you're just sitting there, and you're like, fuck, okay, even this three degrees of separation of generational divide, even that can achieve restoration, you know? Even that can achieve a different form. It's not punitive, accept me on my terms. It's I can come to see you and we can still relate in in these different like dimensional registers rather than just the problem is is I think when you when you when you you know how they say like when you see everything um what when everything's what is it when everything's a nail or whatever the fuck the saying is how does it go when you see when you, when you have a hammer no, when you a see nail. Every, 
when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah. It's kind of like this. It's like the quantified view of reality sees everything in terms of like a punitive logic, right? That there's an eye for an eye, that there's like a, a logic of payer and payee, that there's this like recompense that will balance the scales. And it's so, it's so replete in our society that we oftentimes, we think according to this sort of like double entry standard or this double entry logic without even realizing that we're doing it. And I would argue that that critique is actually uh, a symptom of that 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 logic of um, like the desire for some sort of like quantified um, justice, right? And so when we think in those terms, we see everything in those terms. And yeah. I think that that's part of the problem with that critique is it sees that because it can only think in those terms. But I I just think we've got to try to to break out of that logic of quantized world realities where X is equivalent to Y and this pain deserves like this sort of payment or this joy reserves this deserves this kind of payout. You know, I just, I, we, we've got to stop thinking in those terms. Yeah. And that's not to say that, um, other films or other, uh, narratives couldn't sort of exemplify exactly what those critiques are talking about. Cause there certainly. certainly are, um, like entitled millennial, like we've done nothing wrong. We've just been fucked over by boomers. Um, and so we, we demand that they humiliate themselves before us. And that's just, again, the punitive logic being re-encoded, right? But as, yeah. instead, we should, we should foreground this idea that, that mutual understanding is the goal. Not just, not merely accepting, right? But like understanding, which is a kind of like you accept and you understand and you affirm, right? Um, and that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that that holds for like all persons, but at the very least, um, with your loved ones, because when that doesn't happen with your loved ones, when that's imbalanced between your loved ones, and that when reconciliation is impeded in that way between people that you love, that's when the threat of nihilism actually like comes from subterranean underground and ends up, uh, you know, enveloping you. And the mom doesn't grovel at the end, you know, she says, I still think that this, 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 and this, you know, like yeah. <laughs> I, I still, right. She's like, but, yeah, it's, it's not yeah. humiliation. Yeah. That's right. There's no groveling there. So I think, I think, um, it's motivated by love. Yeah. It's not motivated by humiliation mm. or domination at all. Yeah. Which is a, which is just, it's just looking at the entire paradigm, the relational paradigm totally differently. So yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I yeah. think that that, you know, um, there's, there's other parts of the, of the film and the whole like kind of, yeah, the universe is meaningless. Might as well like be kind or whatever. I'm not sure I, I, I fully buy into that stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but at the very least the, the relational dynamics in the film are the center of the film. And I thought that those, were, that's why people are reacting the way that they are. Cause those are very well done. They clearly strike a nerve in a way that most of their films don't do. And that's why people are reacting the way that they are to it. And I actually would even offer that the person who sent the film to their mother, because they were demanding recompense that actually that was only them using the language of a system of quantification because that's the language that they've been fed, but that actually what they really wanted was reconciliation or that they wanted love or they wanted restoration at these deeper registers that I'm talking about. It's just that we don't oftentimes have the tools to ask for those things. We don't have the tools to think those things. That's me just totally going off on a speculative whim there. But that's what I, I, I think that the reason this film induces that type of response is because what we're seeing up on the screen the screen is far more than just the quantized, you know, demand for humiliation 
and um, and and punitive justice, but maybe we only have the tools when we translate it to ourselves to think in those terms. But I think that the sense in us, the reason that the film resonates and that would even induce us to respond in the first place is because there's actually more going on there. We just don't always have access to that more. Yeah, I mean, the, the punitive justice only feels good when actual restorative justice is either not on the table or that's we right. can't verbalize it. That's and right. that's not to say it doesn't feel good because it does, right? I'm not going to like d- deny and say like some stoic, uh, like some stoic sense of virtue <laughs> where it's like, no, those things actually, you don't feel good when you humiliate the person you don't like or whatever. Like, no, it really does. But it, it only only does because you either can't um, realize the, the true restorative thing that you really underneath all want, or you just can't verbalize it because your culture is so diseased that you haven't been given the tools uh, to name that thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Which is probably the state that we're in. <laughs> and that's why the movie has, has struck such a chord. can saying something true about us that uh, we haven't been able to verbalize very well. Yeah. Yeah, so if you have not seen the film and you just listened to a, I mean, it's kind of spoilery um, conversation, definitely go see it. If you've seen it, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts. You can you can hit us up on owls underscore at underscore dawn on Twitter. Um, of course, you can hit us up individually on Twitter as well. But yeah, um, give us your hot takes. Give us your theories. Give us your philosophies of the film because there's a lot going on there. So, I mean, it was everything everywhere all at once. So there's, there's even more everything strings. Everything everywhere all at once is a lot to talk about. Yeah. It is. Yeah. There's even more threads that we're not pulling at. So um, definitely let us know. All right. So now we'll move on to our final segment, which, as you all know, is the Sticky Leaves segment of the podcast. For those who don't know, Sticky Leaves segment is where one of us talks about whatever it is that very much like the movie we just talked about, tries to find meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Austin, what's your rock with googly eyes and a universe without the conditions for life this week? <laughs> um, I think I think I've realized something about myself over the last month or so, maybe two months, that um, that is kind of a cool thing because it makes me want to follow it even further. Which is that I really love, like, I really love history. I love history, right? And I really love reading nonfiction history books they can be about like the history of mythology or so i recently picked up i was i was flying so i picked up a neil a neil gaiman book on um, norse mythology which <laughs> was really fucking cool it's nonfiction. Um, yeah it's basically him just like well i mean it's it's basically him just telling the norse mythologies the norse tales right oh, so okay. i mean I don't even know where that fits because it's mythology, but um, it's not like it's not like he's doing like he did with American Gods, where he's telling like a narrative from the perspective of Loki or something. He's just literally retelling the tales um, based on like accumulating different resources and like the, the manuscripts and the different versions, and he's basically just telling all of the tales, right? And um, it's really cool. And then I've also been reading a book called Double Entry by Jane Gleason White that's about um, the invention of what's called double entry bookkeeping, which is something that a lot of people in particularly like critical finance talk about as being potentially a way to understand like the very foundations or even like the very essence, if you will, of capitalism. Um, but it was developed by this uh, Renaissance uh, math 
mathematician slash artist named Luca Pacelli in, um, it was canonized in his writings in like the 1400s, but he was very close with Leonardo da Vinci and various other uh, big figures from the time of the Renaissance. And so um, a lot of people see double entry as not being just um, a simple accounting device, but that it also changes how the world is viewed. So there's a lot of talk in like art theory, right? Or art history, for example, that like phase um, and perspectival phased space paintings emerged in the Renaissance because of um, certain developments of mathematical geometry and stuff like that at that time, right? And double <laughs> entry is one of like the key elements that they think might have contributed to the development of Renaissance art, which changed um, art from being like the Byzant Byzantian um, sort of like two-dimensional to the perspectival three-dimensional scenes and stuff like that, right? And so it changes It changes not only the artistic sensibility, but there's like a mathematical sensibility that's being changed. And then that translates into um, differences in how we have canonized how to do commerce, how we've sort of like singularized how to do commerce under this one technique of double-entry bookkeeping. And anyway... It's just a really interesting book because it gives you a little bit about like the history of the, you know, it like takes you back to pre-Renaissance Venice and then you're um, you're like learning about the merchants of Venice and then it takes you over to like Florence and you're learning about like the warring powers between the different families and how they were like patrons for these artists and these scientists and these mathematicians and then um, and then it takes you forward to like fucking present day corporations and like the Enron scandal and how they were able to cook their books because of this technique of double entry bookkeeping and I don't know it's doing a lot and it's this historical book but I really love this genre of literature so beyond just recommending the books which I think are great if you're interested in Norse mythology go check out the Neil Gaiman book on Norse mythology if you're interested in potentially like thinking about renaissance paintings and how they may have emerged because of this mathematical technique called double entry check out this book by uh, Gleason White but it's just more about like the genre that I really, really, really enjoy. And it makes me like super excited. I want to do like more, you know, I'm like, shoot, I want to, I want to find like really good, um, like historical nonfiction and then maybe even veer into historical fiction, which isn't something that I really spend much time reading, but you know, like I, I feel like I could get into it. So I don't know. That's, that's, that's my sticky leaves. Okay. Two questions. Uh, yep. one, what is double entry bookkeeping? <laughs> I don't, I think I've heard that term before, but I don't know what it is. Essentially it's for a business. I mean, there's a Pacholi's system has like three different books that you keep, um, ultimately coming down to the final book, which is you have on the left side of the column, you have your, uh, credits and on the right hand side, you have your debits prior to that development. People didn't keep their books on a single sheet of paper that had a left column and a right column. So you couldn't track the differences between your like capital stock and your outflows. And um, so it was a lot messier, but by just the development of this really simple two-sided on the same sheet of paper, you could see where you were at any given point and you could determine whether or not your business was profitable, which would then lead you to, you know, how to be more efficient in your next round of investment. Right? So for example, in like 15th century Venice, if you're a merchant sailor and you've got to go off, your business cycle is the ship's journey, right? And so you can keep track of all of your capital inputs on one column, and then you keep track of all of your debits 
losses, you know, payments for the crew, whatever, whatever, whatever on the right hand side. And then at the end of the day, you're, um, you're able to actually balance your accounts. Prior to the development of this double entry system, it hadn't been canonized that there was like a single way to keep uh, account books. And so there were a bunch of different techniques. And um, it just wasn't nearly as efficient. So and so she goes into like the history too about like where it came from. It most likely actually derived from, as with most mathematics that we use today, from um, the from the Arab world, from Arab culture, from Arab mathematics mm -hmm. and uh, numbers, because they weren't using they were still using Roman numerals by the time of the Renaissance came around, because the Catholic Church had a stranglehold over like the qualitative value of mathematics, right? So even using um, Arabic numerals was viewed as like sacrosanct because it would reduce things to quantity rather than a sort of like qualitative relation that they believed that Roman numerals still retained for various reasons. But anyway, that's what the the um, invention, if you will, of double entry bookkeeping was. It was a simple way to keep your books so that you could manage your um, profits and losses, um, which hadn't been done before up until then. So- that's really interesting to think about how that simple, obvious change that I think probably most of us would think was just implicit in the idea of doing accounting in the first place <laughs> um, yeah. actually had a huge influence on even cultural stuff. Well, and just think about how we think now in terms of cost-benefit analysis, uh, pro-cons lists, those kinds of things. Those things are a direct result of this shift in rationality. And yeah. the German economist Sombart, who um, writes after Marx, you know, in like the early 1900s, his argument is actually that capitalism literally can only be understood as being co-constitutively emergent with double entry bookkeeping. And he says, which one came first? It's a chicken and an egg problem. Is double entry bookkeeping the essence of capitalism or is the capitalist mode of production something distinct from it? And he kind of says, we don't really know, but he wants to see them as being necessarily co-constitutive. So, and then there's a lot of stuff in Marx too, where he talks about the power of accounting and how accounting was the thing that was like the engine that drove like the efficiency of, um, of capitalist, uh, industry, right. Um, because it allowed for, uh, this unproductive labor allowed for the sort of like more efficient control of, um, capital of capital flows. Right. So there's a lot of interesting stuff here that really helps us think, I think not just economically, but also even culturally, socially, and then I would even say like epistemologically, maybe even ontologically about how we view the kind of modern world or like the the contemporary world. Yeah, it definitely fits with the thesis we've talked a lot about in the podcast about uh, capitalist, uh, like epistemological um, uh, con like conception being something like rationality is, is deflated or reduced to uh, that kind of quantification, right? Yeah. Not merely that it, that it's, that that's constitutive of rationality, which it partly is. Like I don't think anyone denies that, but that it's it's reduced to that. It, it exhausts rationality. It's only only thing that is rational is to is to quantify um, in that cost benefit sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's interesting, um, but I just I love this freaking genre, and it makes me want to just go out and just read so much more um, like history type of stuff. You well, know? did you? I, I wanted to ask: Did you have a history book that, when you were younger, really sort of cemented you? Because I'm thinking about, for me, as you were talking about about some of this, that you know, probably a very common story for uh, for people is that reading Howard Zinn's of People's History of the United States in high school yeah. was the thing. And the funny thing for me was that it was a, a, a rapidly conservative U.S. AP U.S. history teacher who assigned Howard Zinn 
to us mm. to read so that he could then debunk all of it. <laughs> mm, right. Mm, mm. But reading it actually kind of radicalized me. I, I, I got a, a new view. It changed everything I thought about um, what I had been taught in school. And not because necessarily Zen is, is correct about everything, but that the orientation of viewing history in that way, it was a totally new thing. Did you have a, a similar experience with any nonfiction book when you were younger? I didn't have like a book, but I do remember three like pivotal experiences. One being like I was just obsessed with dinosaurs and with space. And like the first thing that I ever wrote, like that I properly wrote was like this this fictional tale of me like with an alien that like went back in time and we experienced all these things together, right? So I was always interested in like time travel and history and like the old, the old times, like dinosaurs, obsessed with dinosaurs, you know, I mean, a lot of kids are, but so like that had like a big impression on me. And then I think that morphed into when I was in fifth grade, fourth grade, fourth grade, I had this teacher, her name was Mrs. Allen, Mrs. Carol Allen. And she, um, had this whole week where, you know, I grew up in, in, as a kid in conservative Orange County, and she had this whole week where she was, she was like a Japanophile. And she had this whole week where we, we like learned about um, Japan. And she showed us like videos of the effects of the bombs, the atomic bombs. And as a child, I just remember thinking it was so cool to take me to another world outside of the bubble of Orange County, right? And I did that through this teacher's real interactive, like she, she'd spent a boatload of time in Japan. She loved Japan. So she brought in like kimonos and stuff like that. And, and so we like learned about a different culture through a, an appreciation of that culture's history. And then the last one that I can really remember from a critical perspective was when I actually went to junior college. Um, I had a teacher who was my American history teacher who basically the, the central argument was that the Declaration of Independence was just um, a, a piece of propaganda and that all the grievances that they are the, the grievances that the um, colonists level against the crown are either overinflated or not really entirely true and that we need to recognize that this document was more a piece of rhetoric. Um, and it's more performative than it was some sort of like um, representational, empirical, absolute. And just that kind of critical shift for me was so interesting because it got me to then start thinking critically about history and about the documents that we tend to think of as being like, I don't know, these these absolute declarations of truth are oftentimes they come from a particular bias. So those would be like three really foundational things for me. But other than that, I don't I don't really remember like if there was like a particular book, you know. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you remembered all that. I, I, I love to say, but I mostly just want you to find the story about you and your alien girlfriend, time traveling alien <laughs> girlfriend, so that we can like read it and talk about it in the podcast. Dude, find that shit. He was just a buddy. He was just a buddy. He wasn't. Maybe. <laughs> He was just, he was just a homie. He wasn't a girlfriend. He was just a homie, just an alien homie. <laughs> I remember, I, I literally remember it was supposed to just be like a short assignment and we were just supposed to read, like write like a creative writing thing. And I wrote like 20 fucking pages, like not full, like, like big, like adult size pages, but like on like a little book. And I was just fucking writing and I was writing and it was like the, the school <laughs> day was over or people were at lunch and I was still writing and I was still writing. So, yeah. You were destined to be a screenwriter, man. You were already writing Doctor Who when you were like five years old. I know, man. I, I, yeah, I know. Uh, that's it. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Um, 
Troy's got to go off and go do Mother's Day things. I'm going to go off and walk the dog and go get some food. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, give us a follow on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can follow Troy and I individually, of course, on Twitter as well or on Insta or whatever. And uh, yeah, I think next week we're going to do the first of the two patron chosen topics. And we're going to talk about Job, the book of Job. I'm not exactly certain what the conversation will be, but you wanted it, you get it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's pretty much it, unless there's anything I forgot to say. Uh, just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Dasta Dania Marikonski.